Hello, and welcome to Humanities Matter, brought to you by Brill. I'm Lee Chung Greco, and this week we'll be looking at key issues in the field of humanities. Today we're speaking with Joshua Ralston. He's a reader in Christian Muslim Relations at the University of Edinburgh, and his most recent monograph is Law and the Rule of God, a Christian Engagement with Sharia. And we're speaking with Ulrich Schmiedel. He's a lecturer in theology, politics, and ethics at the University of Edinburgh, and his most recent English monograph is The Claim to Christianity, Responding to the Far Right. He's also the series editor of Political and Public Theologies, also published by Brill. Their latest book is The Spirit of Populism, Political Theologies in Polarized Times. Welcome to you both. Thank you. So how did this project come about and how long did it take to accomplish this? The book came out of a conference that we co-hosted at the University of Edinburgh, Joshua and I. So it was a conference under the same title, and we brought together two research centers that we have at the University of Edinburgh. One is the Center for Theology and Public Issues. So it's mainly focused on the role of religion in the public sphere, really, with with a focus on Christianity. And the other center or network that we have at Edinburgh is the Christian Muslim Studies Network. Um, and we felt that these are, in a way, when, when we look, about, look at the role of religion in the public sphere nowadays, these are, in a way, the two centers that, that make sense in addressing populism. Because you, on the one hand, have, especially in the European discourse, these... Um, the constant appeals to Christianity and the, the Christian heritage of Europe um, that is somehow defining who is in and who is out, really. And on the other hand, Islam being brought in as the, the kind of outsider, the dangerous element, the threat, and so on. So we thought joining the expertise of these two centers and the network and the people surrounded, um, or the people who, who belong to these two networks, that would be the ideal starting point to address something like populism. Yeah, and so then we organized a conference at Edinburgh. It was a, was a fairly large conference with lots of international guests. And then we felt that during that confer- conference, what emerged for us more and more was this is actually this is actually a volume. So it was less that we um, brought a kind of focus on, on what pe- we didn't put a straight jacket in a way on people say, you need to write about this and this or that and that. It was more like it actually emerged naturally at that conference there were certain threads of the conversation where we felt oh this actually works together really nicely um and so let's put something together and then that took quite a long time after that not only because of the pandemic made everybody slower stopped a lot of things but also because what we did is um in a way communicate a lot via email after that conference and sort of um, put people in touch with each other saying oh your chapter actually closely interrelates with that chapter um here are the two manuscripts so you can refer to each other and so we did try to you know keep thinking after the conference it was not just people presented their conference paper and then we put it in the book it was more that the conference was the starting point really for for a conversation that then turned into this book 
You begin this volume by noting that populism has become a buzzword. What do you think people believe populism is, and how does that differ from the way academics define it here? It's a buzzword in the sense that you find it in lots and lots of different contexts and conversations. And that means sort of academic conversations on the one hand, but also non-academic conversations and commentary on politics that is going on. And so you've got a very broad spectrum of just people drawing on populism. And with that comes a very broad spectrum of definitions. So in a way, I think it's not straightforward to say this is what you know, people or people on the street uh, believe populism is, and this is what the academics think populism is, I think it's actually much more, much more muddled um, than that, because a lot of what is happening on the streets is influenced by what's happening in the seminal room and, and vice versa. Um, but sort of, because in the academy, you've got a very broad spectrum, again, of definitions. So, I mean, the normal starting point is always to say, okay, populism comes from the Latin word populus, so it means the people. So populism has to do with politics in the name of the people, but then people itself has so many meanings. And I think that is something that comes quite clearly through in the scholarship. So if you look at scholars who work on left-wing populism, then you see sort of people defined as something that stands against the oligarchies, if you, if you wish. So it's people as a demos, as sort of a political category, and you get a vertical opposition that says, you know, it's the people against the oligarchs, those high up. Um, and if you then look at scholars of right-wing populism, it looks quite differently. So they say, yeah, populism is about the people, but people is here um, used against the other in a way, whoever that other might be. And so you've got people not as demos, but as ethnos. So it's more cultural or civilizational, if you wish, uh, category rather than a political one. And so what you then get is a horizontal opposition between you'd say insiders and outsiders. And so, you know, by, by studying two different kinds of populism, you get two very different definitions of populism. Um, one scholar has defined it as a repertoire, which is a definition that comes, comes through again and again and again in our book. Um, there are lots of the different uh, contributors draw on. So the idea that it's a repertoire of different meanings that that somehow pertain to the people without immediately saying what is meant by this and rather saying what is actually interesting is that nothing in particular is meant by it, but rather that the target keeps sort of moving um, throughout. The key thing that you get out of this or what, what, and what our book can show is that the difference between the street and the seminar room is maybe not as big as, as we might want it to be or as we might think it is. Because um, I think in the end, scholars are confronted with, with very similar questions. Um, that people are on the street are confronted with, namely in, in the end, normative questions. Um, in the end, if you study populism, you don't really get out of thinking normatively as well. So not only describing what is going on, how are things, but also thinking about what, what should it be like, what ought to be the case in European politics. So you have to make some, some judgments in a way, some evaluations about things. And there I think um, scholars often like to say they're neutral and at a distance from what is going on in politics. But I think our book, several chapters in the book can show that this is actually not the case, that scholars are, whether they like it or not, quite often really involved in making normative judgments as well. So let's talk about this metaphor of the hijacked faith. 
How does the distinction between the legitimate and the illegitimate owners of religion frame the way populists view the world? Well, the hijacked faith is really one of the key metaphors that you find um, in both places. Again, so you find it in politics, but also in the study of politics. So if you wish, again, you know, on the street and in the seminar room. Um, and interestingly, you can trace that metaphor back to uh, George W. Bush's statement after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. So he said about the terrorists that they had hijacked a great faith. Um, meaning Islam, of course. So these terrorists weren't real Muslims. They had hijacked Islam for their political purposes. And so that metaphor, the hijacked faith, has kind of taken on a life of its own. And you now find it in debates about populism. But it is a really tricky one because it sort of assumes that faith is a little bit like an airplane, like something that is just out there and can either be on or off course, you know, something good or something bad, um, but is in itself a fixed thing. Um, but that's not what you see when you actually look in, in the field. Like um, Religion is something that's always embodied and embedded in different contexts. It's not a, a stable thing like an airplane. Um, and so you actually have to look at this metaphor quite carefully. And then it comes up in the field itself. So I think one example would be the debates about increased immigration in Europe, which is um, for a lot of the populist right-wing um, parties or, or protesters, that, that is one of the um, one of the topics, one of the hot topics. And so they would say, no, we need to keep our borders closed. We don't want more immigrants in here. And one example, they, or one reason they would bring, one argument they would bring is to say, because Europe is Christian or has at least a Christian or a Judeo-Christian heritage. And if we bring in all of these refugees, that will change who we are. We need to defend it against, well, and of course, who is the against, who is the other? That's Islam. If you talk about the Judeo-Christian heritage of Europe, that then needs to be defended against Islam. Then the churches come in, and quite a few, not all of them, but quite a few are actually um, supporting the resettlement of refugees, accommodation, accompaniment, and so on in Europe. And then the churches would say, what these populists say about Christianity is not correct. These populists have hijacked Christianity. Christianity is all about helping our neighbor regardless of faith. But then the populist response to this would be, no, 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 we have not hijacked Christianity. We are saying what Christianity is actually about, namely the identity of Europe as, as something that has a Christian, Judeo-Christian heritage. The churches have hijacked it for their political agenda of um, you know, opening the borders. And so the, the metaphor of the, of the hijacked faith is, is put to use in a way on, on both sides in the field. Um, so instead of buying into that metaphor as a scholar, we found that it's in a way better to look at what is going on here and say what we actually see is a struggle for Christianity in this case. You could play that through with other, other religions. But what we have here is a struggle for the definition of Christianity, and you have people laying claim to Christianity from different ends of the political spectrum. Anger has motivated many of the populist movements we're seeing today, from Trump to Brexit. How are anger and sovereignty as two secularized theological concepts? And actually, maybe before you get into that, can you just break down what you mean by a, quote, secularized theological concept, because that phrase feels a bit like an oxymoron. Uh, if you look at populism, 
as well as responses to populists, you see a lot of anger, right? Anger about uh, society, anger about immigration, about economic policies. Um, but then you also see people who are against certain populist movements being angry that populists have broken the social code or betrayed the religion. Um, so one of our essays uh, by Vincent Lloyd tries to look at how we might think about populism through anger. And he does this by drawing on a longstanding idea in the field of political theology that much of politics in the West, at least, are secularized theological concepts. Um, that may seem oxymoronic, aren't secular and theology the opposite? But in political theology, scholars tried to look at how actually the formation of secular ideas are actually interwoven with longstanding theological concepts. So we'll give you one example. Uh, in Christianity, as well as in Judaism and Islam, uh, God is considered to be a sovereign, to be the king. So for instance, in the Hebrew Bible, uh, at first, when the people of Israel are wanting to form, uh, they don't have a king. And it's only because God sort of acquiesces to people's desires that they're given a king. So this idea that God is a sovereign or a king is central uh, to Jewish, Christian, and Islamic ideas. And what uh, political theology notes is that many of these concepts, what it means to be a community, atonement, sovereignty, come from a deep theological background, but they've been transformed, or we might even say they've migrated into politics. Uh, and sovereignty is one example of this. Um, this is most famously associated with a controversial scholar named Carl Schmitt, who wrote during the Weimar Republic, um, so the period between World War I and World War II in Germany, and he makes this argument. But we can think about this um, maybe in more concrete terms uh, about ideas of atonement, right? So here in the United Kingdom, where both Orish and I are working, we're having a big argument about whether or not the uh, Boris Johnson and his government have broken the rules. Do the rules apply to the leader? Uh, where is work and where is a party? It looks in some ways that this has nothing to do with religion. But there's built into this a lot of anger and questions about, do the leaders have to follow the same rules as the people? Um, and what we see, according to political theology, is that this isn't just a secular debate, but it's also not just a religious debate. But the concepts and terms are kind of interwoven together. And what political theology seeks to do is to show the ways that theology or religion might be hiding in plain sight in things that we already think are secular. Um, another example that we could see is the deeply religious or ritual ways that the attack on the Capitol building on January 6th of last year in the United States played out. There were crosses, there were prayers, but they weren't just Christian. They also involved certain allegiances to the United States. Uh, and so what we see going on there is, is a weird amalgamation of theology and secular politics that we think political theology can shed light on, especially when it comes to populism, uh, because populism often draws on longstanding ideas about religion, about who belongs in a community, 
about who is in and who is not in that relate both to community formation, but also have roots in religion and Christianity, especially. So to use an example Orosh already used, how have populists tried to, let's say, excommunicate uh, British citizens who happen to be Muslim because they don't fit into the right community? Uh, those are some of the themes that we're sort of looking at. And our essay, the, the first chapter by Vincent Lloyd, looks at how anger itself can be deployed in a variety of ways, both for good uh, in terms of anger at injustice, anger at uh, economic deprivation, but also the way anger can be used to justify a whole host of different social and political arrangements. So we've talked about climate change many times on this podcast. In fact, we've dedicated an entire series to it. But what is the second threat, this, quote, spiritual climate change, and what can theologians do to combat it? Yeah, this, this metaphor of the spiritual climate change comes or comes in in a chapter in, in our book written by Matthias Martinsson. He's a professor of theology in Sweden. And in a way, I think it's quite a clever metaphor because it says that what's happening in politics and the role of religion in politics, there is some sort of subtle shift happening. And it's a bit like climate change in a way that the consequences are devastating, but we don't see it immediately every day. It's something significant, but sort of subtle in our, our everyday lives. Um, and he describes it in a way the shift is how people appeal to religion in a new way when it comes to politics, and, and that is as identity markers. So, so he says that Christianity, and his focus is particular Europe, and, and, and then in particular Sweden and Hungary, um, the two countries he compares, and, and what appeals to religion, how they work in these two countries. And he says Christianity is fundamentally ambiguous there, so it's moving more and more to the political center, like the claim to power is there, and it is trying to make precisely this contrast that we've talked about now a few times to say like Christianity goes with the insider, non-Christianity, and that's in most cases Islam goes with the outsider. So we're marking an identity, saying people versus non-people, Christians versus non-Christians. And in that kind of appeal to religion or Christianity in this case, we're losing track of other questions that, that Christianity would have been interested in or that would normally be connected to Christianity, you know, more sort of spiritual questions um, about, you know, who am I, where do we come from, why does this all make sense? Like all of these um, sort of, you could say, classic theological questions go fall more and more into the background. And what you get is, like Matthias Martinson calls the faith as a monument. So you get this monumental identity marker that you can sort of carry with you and say, I stand for this, without actually engaging in any of the more detailed and difficult spiritual questions that are normally connected to religious traditions like Christianity. Um, and scholars have found different ways of describing this. So some would say it's Christianism versus Christianity, a bit like you know, Islamism versus Islam. Others say this is about belonging versus believing. So populist politics is about belonging but actually has no no faith in God and um, so it's a it's a that's another way of putting it. it's a thin appeal to religious tradition rather than a thick one that engages in all of these um and in his chapter Matthias Martin is critical of these ways of describing it because he says in a way if we describe it like this then we do the same thing just on a different level we'll again prop up 
our idea of the thick Christianity that is all about believing and so on, we prop that up um, as a monument. So we're doing in a way the same thing that we're criticizing just on a slightly different level. And from that he moves into, if, if we can't do that or if we shouldn't be doing that as theologians, um, that's why his chapter is about the role of the theologian and all of this, um, then what, what should we do? And his response is an interesting one. So he says, um, in a way, we need to focus on the potential that religions or Christianity, in, in his case and in particular, have for fostering solidarities. Um, and he actually, I've, I've uh, looked at the chapter earlier, and he actually writes the only reason for continuing to work as a theologian under the current conditions. Um, that's how he sets up. The only reason for him to continue to do this is so that we can point out that there are different meanings to Christianity. Christianity is not just about identity. It's also that, also always or almost always has been that. But there's so much more to it. And our role as theologians would be to bring out these other meanings so that we, we don't get bogged down in one particular one and rather see the variety of Christianity. And for him, that is very much connected to rethinking theology in the context of a society that is characterized by, by the pluralism of religions. And I think that is something that runs through our volume, um, but also through this chapter in particular, is to think through how do we make sense of this from the perspective of different faith traditions. So traditionally, you'd have said, like theologians of each tradition work on a problem, and maybe later they meet and talk to each other. So first, you know, Christians sort it out for themselves, Muslims sort it out for themselves, Jews sort it out for themselves, and then they meet later. But in a way, society doesn't work like that. We're too late if we do it like that, because the actual problems, and populism is a, is a good example, it's always already mixed. Like, it's almost every statement about Christianity in populist politics is also one about Islam, even if Islam isn't mentioned. And every statement that they make about Islam is also one about Christianity, even if Christianity isn't mentioned. So it's from the beginning entangling different religions. And so our response needs to be one that from the beginning entangles different religions. So that's the that's sort of the the drive of his chapter. And I think the, the volume overall is trying exactly that. So we were very keen on having Muslim, Jewish, Christian, and also people from, from no faith um, writing in that chapter so that we, that in that chapter, so that the book overall brings together these different perspectives. And it's also the series, so the, the, the book is the first one in a new series with Brill, published with Brill, called Political and Public Theologies, Comparisons, Coalitions, Critiques. And there you have that thinking as well. So this new situation of a highly pluralistic, um, in terms of religion, highly pluralistic uh, Europe or um, American context, but actually we can think through that worldwide, requires us to do theology in a pluralistic way, in, in the broadest sense. I think we'd have to look into exactly the details of what, what would that look like um, and what should it look like. And we, we don't have an answer for all of this, but we have a starting point here, I think, with that book to say, okay, let's look at this from the angles of different faith traditions and, and no faith traditions and see where common threats evolve. What can we learn from comparing different things? What can we learn from pulling forces together, so building coalitions um, and I think that was very much the, the thrust of this chapter overall. Yeah, and I think just following up on, on Orish, 
to play out the analogy a little bit more with climate change, um, it is populism, political theology, religious pluralism, secularism. These are also global realities that face all of us. So we can, while our, our book focused primarily on Europe and North America, you can also talk about populisms in the Philippines or in Brazil or in China or in India. It's, still, it's a global phenomenon, uh, just like climate change, but in each different place, it impacts it in different ways. So you need to have enough depth to understand the difference of how religious traditions, political traditions are going to be intersecting uh, in different ways that are both global and also natural uh, and national. If you you know take a comparison to COVID-19 responses, COVID-19 was clearly a global phenomenon. And different nations tried to address it. Um, but there was also a sense that even if your country was doing well, so on, so to speak, uh, in early phases of COVID-19, the fact that it was a global phenomenon meant that the pandemic was eventually going to reach you. And so you had to think both very specifically, but also with global dynamics. And I think our 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 work is trying to do something similar with populism, where we're looking primarily at the West. Uh, but aware that this is a global phenomenon and we're inviting in the final chapter for other people in different places to carry on that work, to analyze their own countries, religious traditions and political traditions to think about how populism and political theology might come to bear in those contexts. That's Joshua Ralston and Ulrich Schmiedel. Their latest book is The Spirit of Populism, Political Theologies in Polarized Times. Thanks again to you both. Thank you for having us. You are listening to the Humanities Matter podcast. You can find more podcast episodes on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast.